Welcome to the Mindful SLP, the podcast for SLPs looking for simple tools and optimal outcomes. Your host is Denise, experienced speech therapist specializing in all things pediatric, and Dan, business manager for her private clinic. Welcome back to the Mindful SLP. Hey, this time for a little bit of R&R. This week, we're going to be talking about three books that Denise has read that she found to be very fascinating from a speech therapy perspective. The three books are Ghost Boy by Martin Pistorius, Breaking Night by Liz Murray, and The Story of My Life, The Restored Version by Helen Keller. Now, Denise, I know that you really enjoy autobiographies. I see you reading them most of the time. What is it that gravitates you to biographies, stories about people. I love to read about people who overcome whatever life throws at them. I'm just fascinated by people who develop strength of character and show amazing resourcefulness in difficult situations. Mm -hmm. Besides the strength of character displayed by the people in these books, Martin and Liz and Helen and Anne, there are a few points that really interest me as being relevant to our profession. And that's another reason I chose to highlight these three particular books today. Well, let's start off by talking about Ghost Boy by Martin Pistorius. What drew you to this book? Well, the headline about Martin just grabbed me right away. It reads, they all thought he was gone, but he was alive and trapped inside his own body for 10 years. Well, I wanted to know how he came back, how that all happened. Well, give us some background. How did he get trapped? Well, Martin became mysteriously ill when he was 12, and over the next 18 months, he lost all of his motor function, his ability to speak, He ended up in a wheelchair. He was unresponsive. Mm. And actually, he has no memory of the first four years after that happened. Four years. Then when he was about 16, he began regaining consciousness, and he was aware of what people were saying around him. He understood it. By the time he was 19, he was fully aware, but he had no way to communicate to people that he was aware. He could communicate with his eyes, but nobody knew that. Wow. And so that's when my speech therapist side kicked in, and I was like, somebody get him an AAC device. Someone look in his eyes and notice that he is trying to tell you something. I guess that's what happened, since he wrote a book, obviously, about his experiences. But how did that happen? Who noticed that he was aware? There was a caretaker named Verna who was a massage therapist, and Martin writes about how he so looked forward to her visits because she deeply cared when she was with him. She had conversations with him, And somehow she was able to establish a connection with him in spite of his condition. Mm. And she had gone to an in-service on AAC devices and thought that Martin would be a great candidate. So that brings me to the first point I want to emphasize that we SLPs can particularly relate to. It's to assume competence. Now, Susan Berkowitz, who is a specialist in AAC, a speech therapist who is a specialist in AAC, says, always assume your client has the competence to communicate if you provide the right tools. And I think to myself, what if Verna had not thought about Martin? Oh my, that would have been a tragedy. He just, he would have just remained trapped forever. Oh, what a life. I mean, you can't even bear thinking about it. But instead, now he's married and he runs his own business. Um, On his website, it says he does wheelchair racing. Wow. Talk about overcoming. Well, tell us a little bit about Martin's AAC device. I've heard you talk about them, and I have a very little knowledge about them. I mainly know about Stephen Hawking's. So initially, Martin was going to get a device that was programmed with 200 words. After the assessment, that's what the team kind of decided. Mm. Now, that may seem like a lot of words for someone who hasn't said a word in years. But Martin's heart sank when he realized that he was going to be limited to 200 words. With all the words he had inside of him, everything he wanted to say, 
It was oh. depressing for him, but he couldn't tell anyone. Yeah, well, as a 12-year-old, he's going to have way more than 200 words in his vocabulary. And I, I'm assuming he didn't lose any vocabulary while he was uh, in this state. That would have been a really difficult thing. Fortunately for him, that plan fell through. Mm-hmm. He ended up with uh, a regular computer with AAC software. And then, of course, the sky was the limit. Oh, good. <laughs> but here's another SLP moment. It's so important to give our clients as much vocabulary as they can handle. So Martin describes this moment when his mother was inputting words for him. So she did have to input words for him so that they were in the memory of the computer. Mm-hmm. But Martin hadn't regained his ability to spell. Mm. So he can't speak. He can't spell. Sometimes it's a bit of a guessing game. <laughs> right. He's from South Africa, and he was longing to s- describe the color of the sky in summer, and he wanted to use the word turquoise. His mother was trying so hard. I mean, she knew it was a color. She just couldn't get turquoise. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he uses the word longing, that he was longing to use that word. And that just really struck a chord with me. It's very, very important that we give our kids vocabulary. Yeah. Well, what's the third thing you learned from this book? So my third and final takeaway from Ghost Boy is about the power of decision-making. Now, I mentioned earlier that Martin could only communicate with his eyes, but eventually he regained some hand control. And so he was using his hands to operate his AAC device. And the technology at that time required him to choose a word as it scrolled past on his screen. So one morning, his plan was to type out what he wanted for breakfast. But he missed a word as it scrolled by, and he had to wait for all these other words to scroll by, basically start over again, before he could capture that word again because of his poor hand control. It took him a really long time, but it was really super empowering for him when he was able to type out what he wanted for breakfast. So the power of decision-making, because before that, you couldn't tell someone if he hated the food, if he wanted salt, if it was too hot, if it was too cold, nothing. That would be a challenge. But now contrast that empowering decision-making moment with his first visit to England to see his girlfriend. And she said, hey, Martin, I think you need new shoes. So she took him to a shoe store. Now, for years, he had been wearing the same brand, same pair of brown shoes, very serviceable. And when they wore out, his parents just got him new ones. Mm-hmm. And now he's in this shoe store, which you've been in a shoe store, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Looking at all of those choices so overwhelmed him that he started crying. He was so embarrassed. I mean, he's in public. He's there with his girlfriend. It was just too much for him. His girlfriend, later his wife, her reaction is wonderful. She's like, you know, we'll get through this together. This is just too much today. But I thought it was very interesting because I have seen my own clients when they have the power to choose, how excited they get. I've also seen them overwhelmed by choice. So we need to help them grow into choosing. Wow, that's, that's really good. Now I want to read it. Okay, that's Ghost Boy by Martin Pistorius. Let's move on to Breaking Night by Liz Murray. Now, you've, you've brought her story up several times while you were reading it. In fact, I used to get a, a, a debrief just about every day on it. Tell us a little bit about Liz Murray. Her parents were both drug addicts. And their addictions were so consuming, it just took over their lives. Mm. Um, she didn't like to go to school. Now, can you guess why? She was hungry. She was tired. She was dirty. She smelled, which the other kids didn't hesitate to point out. Of course. And it was easier to stay at home and her mother let her. Oh, yeah. So if no one's pushing her or no one's expecting anything from her, what's she going to do? And, of course, she gets farther behind. Mm -hmm. So then it's even harder to go. 
And as she got older, she got really, really good at circumventing the truancy system. So she knew how to intercept letters and how to intercept phone calls. By the time she was in high school, she was basically a high school dropout. Mm. And one day, she did go to a high school history class with her friend just on a whim. And she aced the test on the Civil War. Wow. Because her father was a great reader. That's one advantage she had. She'd read a book on the Civil War. And she knew the answers. And that high school teacher took her out in the hall and pleaded with Liz to come to school. And what she said was, I understand why you don't come to school and it's not your fault. You are a victim of these things. I understand. Her teacher had tears in her eyes and she really did care. But Liz said, all I heard was I didn't have to do my schoolwork for reasons that were not my fault. I didn't want to do my work anyway. So that was great. Yeah. Sometimes we have to hold people accountable. Yeah. As much as you care, accountability is really important. Now contrast that with the attitude of the teachers at her alternative high school when she did get into an alternative high school. They also cared, but they had really high expectations. They expected her to not be a victim. Mm. It was a different kind of caring, but it was the caring she needed. That's one of the points I want to bring out on Liz's story. As teachers and clinicians, our clients need us to both care about them and hold them accountable. It's important to hold our clients accountable, but you also talked about how Liz started to hold herself accountable. Had she already made the shift to accountability when she started at that alternative high school? This is one of my favorite parts of her story. She left home when she was in her teens, so now she's a high school dropout and homeless. She spent a lot of nights on friends' couches and on floors, sometimes in stairways, um, but it seemed like she was always dropping in on her friends and asking for a meal or asking for a shower, and sometimes her friends snuck her past their parents. Sometimes it was with their parents' permission. Mm. But Liz noticed that having to depend on her friends for these favors changed their relationship. It wasn't really a true friendship anymore. And so one day she had this epiphany. Friends don't pay your rent. That's when she decided to graduate from high school come hell or high water. She developed an amazing internal drive and she did not allow herself to slack off. And she started looking for an alternative high school and several of them turned her down. But she persisted in applying, which was something she hadn't done before. She hadn't persisted before. In fact, on the day that she got into this wonderful high school she ended up at, she had a really significant debate with herself on whether she should go buy pizza with her money or buy the bus ticket to go to the alternative high school. Well, (laughs) the pizza lost out and thank goodness. So she really did start to hold herself accountable. So what's another takeaway from this story? You can do a lot for your clients, but the internal drive has to come from within them. Well, I understand Liz had so much drive that she actually got into Harvard and won a very prestigious scholarship. Tell us more about that. Okay, this is one of the funniest stories in the book. The story about her scholarship interview. She was a finalist for the New York Times Scholarship but she had absolutely no idea how important the New York Times was. Hmm. No one in her circle read it. All the scholarship finalists were scheduled to do an interview. And on that day of the interview, she had packed a lot of errands into her schedule that day, partly because she didn't want to miss any school. That commitment she'd made to herself. She was like, okay, I'm going to get everything done on this day. Then I'll go to my interview. And when she got to the lobby, she was just kind of tired and glad for a chance to sit down. She didn't even notice how tense it was in the lobby. These parents and these other students were so hyped up for this really, really prestigious scholarship. And she was just like, Phew, I got a chance to sit down. And then there were donuts and muffins in the lobby and orange juice. And the secretary said, oh, no one's touched these. Help yourself. And Liz was like, 
sure. <laughs> free <This> food. <laughs> free food. And she opened her backpack, and when the secretary wasn't looking, she swept a whole bunch of donuts and muffins into her backpack. And <laughs> well, She knew the real value. <laughs> and what's so funny, as she goes into the interview, she's got sugar on her hands from the donuts, and she grabs a tissue and says, oh, excuse me, I got to wipe my hands. I mean, she was just clueless about the importance of the scholarship, Uh I guess. She still managed to just relax. What did she tell them? Well, she told them her story first about being homeless. And then someone asked her, well, why should we give you this scholarship? And she said, well, I just really need it. That's amazing. So tell me about the final takeaway from Breaking Night. It's what Liz said. I have learned that no one, no one truly knows what is possible until they go and do it. Wow. That is important. Say that again. I have learned that no one, no one truly knows what is possible until they go and do it. Speaking of impossible, Helen Keller's story seems to be one of those that's on the verge of impossible. Most people are familiar with her story. But what drew you to it? And what can an SLP take away from the story of my life? Yeah, so we wonder, okay, what's new? What's new for Mm -hmm. SLPs? Um, First of all, the story of my life, the restored version, is not a typical autobiography. What do you mean by that? The restored version has material besides Helen's memories. Um, Oh, by the way, she was in her early 20s when she wrote it, so it's only part of her life. But it has letters that Anne Sullivan wrote about her teaching methods and comments by other people who knew Helen or studied her. So the restored version is the one I read. It's the one I recommend because of all this additional material. Hmm. Well, not to be a downer, but that sounds like a lot of stuff to pack into an autobiography. I happily admit that I skipped around the book. Didn't want to read every single thing. What I absolutely love are Anne Sullivan's letters about teaching Helen, Helen's observations about when she discovered language. Those are my favorite parts of the book. Anne was way ahead of her time in understanding how to teach language. And what she wrote is still relevant today. I'll pull it up and I'll read it. I'm like, yeah, I need to remember that. I need to remember that when I'm working with my clients. I could spend way too much time quoting Anne. I'm just going to try and stop it at three things about teaching language. (laughs) So I want to talk about self-regulation, learning language, and finally, an interesting perspective on Helen's character. All right, let's start with self-regulation. Well, Anne realized right away that unless Helen could regulate her emotions, she would be unteachable. Mm. Helen's family always gave in for the sake of peace, and Anne wrote, Nobody has ever seriously disputed her will. Every thwarted desire was a signal for a passionate outburst. You've never experienced a client like that. (laughs) Oh, I have. (laughs) Um, I mean, Helen had that great strength, which served her well later. But but it was a real obstacle to overcome at the beginning. When she was not in control Hmm. of her emotions. Yeah, everything just had to go her way or she fell apart. Well, how did Anne start doing that? Well, eventually she convinced Mr. and Mrs. Keller to let them move into a garden house, just the two of them, so that Helen could learn to trust her and be reasonably obedient. I love how Ansel said reasonably obedient. She's a child, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. They had some titanic struggles, but Helen did learn to self-regulate. It took about two weeks, just the two of them, 24-7. Well, what, what did you learn here? Well, Anne said it best. I have done my best to make them see the terrible injustice to Helen of allowing her to have her way in everything. So we do injustice to our children, to our clients, if we don't help them learn self-discipline and self-regulation. It's like stopping their growth path. Hmm. And also, I have seen this in clients, that they achieve a kind of peace within themselves when they can self-regulate. And Anne wrote about that too, that people commented that Helen could be still 
that she was no longer constantly restless, constantly moving. She had some kind of internal peace. So nowadays, as SLPs, we're more likely to see kids with autism with this struggle with Mm -hmm. self-regulation. But it isn't necessarily just kids with autism. But it's the first thing I think about with any new client because it's the doorway to learning. Well, how did Anne teach language? This is part of the story that seems so impossible because Helen developed language at a very high and sophisticated level, but yet she had very little to reference from. Yes, I mean, she was 19 months when she got ill. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, one of Anne's techniques was she exposed Helen to lots of language by spelling into her hand all day long. Anne wrote, I will pour words into her. So exposure, exposure, exposure. And now we know how vitally important language exposure is, but this was something Anne figured out on her own. The kids hear millions of words before they even begin to speak. And she knew that Helen needed that constant input. So that was the first thing. I actually broke down language into three parts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the exposure, the pouring words into Helen, mm-hmm. okay? And then she figured out how to communicate the nature of language to Helen, that it is both specific and general. Specific and general. What, what do you mean by that? Okay, we're taking a dive sort of into linguistics here. But mm-hmm. when I say water, I could be talking about the water in my glass, and that's very specific. Or I could be talking about the water in ocean, lakes, and rivers, which is general. And this is a concept that was really confusing, Helen, on the day she had that famous moment with the water at the pump where she remembers that word wah-wah mm-hmm. for water. Um, all day she had been confused about the words mug and milk and water. Because her milk and her water were always in her mug. So were they separate things? Were they the same things? I mean, she just didn't understand that concept. So Anne thought, well, if I take her outside and if I pump water over her hand, maybe that'll help her clear this up. And of course, we all know how that turned out. That's not new. But what was new to me is Helen referred to that day ever after as the day I learned everything had a name which is just so interesting because I find that children I work with who are learning to use AAC devices, they have that same struggle that Helen did to learn that everything has a name. They might know that pushing this button activates something. But that doesn't necessarily make that connection yet. Yeah, I have a client right now who does know that ball means ball, but he also pushes ball for every other thing he wants to happen. Hmm. So he does not know yet that everything has a name. Just that he can make certain things happen by activating certain things. Huh. Well, tell me about the third point that you learned. And figure out how to communicate the idea of abstract language to Helen. That's got to be really hard. (laughs) I know. It's even amazing to me. And, of course, we do realize that Helen was very, very bright. Mm -hmm. So was Anne Sullivan. Yeah, so was Anne. (laughs) Helen was stringing beads in a pattern, and she kept making mistakes. Finally, she noticed her error. She concentrated her attention and tried to think it through. This is what Helen wrote. I concentrated my attention and I tried to think it through. And while she was concentrating, Anne touched her forehead and spelled think. And Helen wrote, in a flash, I knew that the word was the name of the process that was going on in my head. So while it's important to realize that Helen was very bright, I think even gifted, and that helped her with her many remarkable achievements, we still need to assume competence in our clients and take them as far as they can go. Wow, that's that's important. Well, let's wrap this up by talking about the perspective on Helen's character you mentioned. You kind of got passionate about that, in fact. Yeah, I did. And the name of this podcast, uh, which we haven't referred to yet, but it's called Choose Your Heart. Okay, Mm -hmm. so we're going to get into that. But um, remember I said the book included people who studied Helen's life. It's got Mm -hmm. some commentaries. Um, Helen has obtained almost a mythical aura because she was so good. 
By everything I've read, by all accounts, she was happy, forgiving, kind, and devoted to helping improve the position of others with disabilities. Plus, she had a sense of humor. Well, one scholar suggested that she was so good because all the literature that she read at that time portrayed children as models of virtue. And so that's what Helen became, because that's what she read. And I just think that idea really does Helen a disservice to say that she obtained a kind of superficial goodness. I mean, it really takes from her the power to choose to be good. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say she was naive about the world, too, and that's part of this explanation of why she took on this persona of goodness. But I'm sure she was naive about some parts of her world, and I'm sure I am naive. I'm sure we are all naive about certain parts of our world. We're very naive about what it is to be deaf and blind, like Helen was. Well, you and I were talking earlier about choosing your heart in connection with Helen. Tell us more about that. Maybe you've seen the internet meme, choose your heart. Mm-hmm. They go like this. Losing weight is hard. Being overweight is hard. Choose your heart. Or changing is hard. Not changing is hard. Choose your heart. Well, yeah. I really believe that Helen woke up every day and chose her heart. And that choosing was what formed her strength of character. Well, you could say that about Martin and Liz as well. They chose their heart. They all did. I guess that's why I love these books. I love books about people who choose their heart. And just like you, you're choosing your heart too. I remember the days when you were terrified of sitting down in front of a microphone. Actually, this podcast was kind of hard. <laughs> I spent through a couple of rewrites. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. In this coming year of 2021, we challenge you to choose your heart. There's going to be something that's going to really crop up, that's going to really give us a run for our money. Choose your heart. How are you going to handle it? Maybe you want to grab one of these books and kind of see how other people did it so that you can learn something that'll help you when you choose your heart. Come back next time, and we'll be talking about our therapy. So we look forward to talking with you in the new year. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The Mindful SLP. We hope you found some simple tools that will have optimal outcomes in your practice. This podcast is sponsored by SLP Pro Advisor. Visit slpproadvisor.com for more tools, including Impossible R Made Possible, Denise's highly effective course for treating those troublesome R's. A link is in the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and tell your fellow SLPs. And please, let us know what you think. Join the conversation at slpproadvisor.com.